Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. We, we've been talking about as we've been going through Mark, this, this kind of march towards Jerusalem that Jesus is on. And he's predicted uh, what would happen there, that he would die and rise again on the third day. He, he's done that three times, but, but they, he's been ever moving with his disciples closer and closer to Jerusalem where all of this would happen. And in the passage that we're going to look at today, and then what we're going to look at for the next couple of weeks as we continue our series in Mark, we're going to look at what happened when he arrived in Jerusalem. And so today we're looking at the the, the story of the triumphal entry that that is celebrated in the church calendar at at Palm Sunday. And, And so let's read God's Word together. We're going to read the first 11 verses of Mark chapter 11. This is what God's Word says. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and I will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And and some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Most gracious fathers, we come once again to your word and read this story of Jesus coming in as the true king promised from so long ago to bring salvation to his people, I ask that you would help us by your spirit to understand your word, that you would fill my mouth with your words, that we might be strengthened by your spirit through the preaching of Christ. Amen. Michael Horton writes in his shorter uh, systematic theology, every covenant has a Lord on whose name the lesser ruler calls in the case of extreme danger. And in the battle royale of the Old Testament between the great kings or suzerains, Pharaoh and Yahweh, the revelation of God's name is seen to be politically significant. Yahweh claims his worship over his people and over Pharaoh by sending plagues upon Egypt. With each plague he sends, Yahweh mocks a particular deity in the Egyptian pantheon, and each plague further hardens Pharaoh's heart, so that he will not let God's people go. All of this sets the stage for God's sovereign liberation, so that it is clear to all how the people are saved. The liberation of God's people will not be in any way credited to the leniency or acquiescence of the rival Lord. In other words, God was working in such a way that everybody would know that he was the one that delivered his people from Egypt. 
Not Pharaoh. It wasn't Pharaoh in his benevolence. And it wasn't Moses in, in his might. And, and it wasn't the people in their uprising. It was Yahweh who worked. And he did this in this subversive way by, by one by one undoing all of the deities of Egypt. That's a fascinating study to see how each of these plagues challenges directly the deities that they bowed down to in Egypt and mocked them. And just as the subversive way in which God delivered his people from Egypt made it clear that the great earthly ruler Pharaoh had nothing to do with their deliverance, so we begin to see in this passage that the subversive way in which Jesus came as king to deliver his people from this present evil age highlights that no earthly ruler has had or does have or will have anything to do with the deliverance and security of the people of God today. Pharaoh finally declared, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. And he proclaimed this because Yahweh had crushed him. Even taking the firstborn children, the firstborn sons of Egypt. So also the nations and the kings and rulers who rage against the Lord and against his anointed, as Rob read to us in Psalm 2 earlier, will be crushed with a rod of iron as God brings about his good, pleasing, and perfect will of establishing his kingdom. And this will not be done through the people of God grabbing power in this world. But it has already been inaugurated through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and will be consummated in his coming again in glory as the eternal son of David whose kingdom will have no end. Just as the angel in the Gospel of Luke promised. And so we've seen in Mark, as we do in all the Gospels, as we've been working through this Gospel up to this point, all these kind of numerous hints at the, the subversive and surprising and kind of upside-down way in which Jesus was bringing his kingdom. He came meeting and touching and healing and identifying with the, the sorrows of the sick and needy. He came calling and spending time with sinners to the point that people questioned if he was one. He came challenging the religious establishment that had its sights on behavior and an earthly kingdom. He came teaching with authority that the people should have understood but missed. He came announcing in himself the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. He came announcing that with his kingdom, with his coming, the kingdom of God was at hand, but that it would only be established through his death and resurrection. In other words, that the way that Christ was bringing the kingdom didn't look anything like what the people wanted it to look like. Now, to, to be sure, it looked exactly like when we read the Old Testament through the eyes of the cross, it looked exactly like what the Old Testament taught them to expect. But like us, 
They were sinners with, with worldly ambitions and desires and wanted something very different. And this surprising and, and even subversive coming of the kingdom continues in Mark 11 with the triumphal entry and, and will grow in intensity throughout the rest of Mark's gospel as, as Jesus challenges the authorities and, and cleanses the temple and curses the fig tree and all of these different things. But it starts here with what we learn about the kingdom of God through the triumphal entry. And so we're going to look at this story in four parts. First, the messianic entry in verses 1 through 8 or 9. Then the hopeful royal reception of this messianic king. Then we're going to look at, in verse 11, this, this anticlimactic departure. And what that seemingly kind of just random thrown in verse teaches us. And finally, we're going to ask why Jesus coming as king in the manner that he did matters for us today. So first, this messianic entry in verses 1 through 8, it, it describes kind of, if we're honest, it describes a little bit of a weird scene. It's, it's Jesus showing up, he's coming into Jerusalem, and he tells two of his disciples, hey, go on ahead of us, and when you get to the city that's in front of us, there will be a colt, a donkey, get that and bring it to me. And if anybody asks you anything, tell them the Lord has need of it. Now, this sounds a little bit like Jesus told two of his disciples to go steal a donkey from some unsuspecting sap that happened to leave his donkey tied up outside at the wrong time. And he's going to wake up and it's going to be gone. But Jesus prepares them for that. He prepares them for somebody asking the obvious question, Hey, why are you taking the donkey? You don't live there. That's not your donkey. Get your hands off my donkey. And they say what they're supposed to. The Lord has need of it. And we'll bring it back to you. In other words, they're, they're kind of, like you see in the movies, they're kind of like cops that, that like their car's wrecked and they're looking around trying to figure out what to do and then like a Ferrari or something drives up at just the right time and they're like, I need this car. And they flip their badge out and then they drive off in the Ferrari and like completely destroy it. Like, it's kind of that kind of scene. Jesus asked his disciples to go commandeer this vehicle because there's some official business for which he needs it. Now, we don't know exactly if what was going on here. There, there's a number of explanations that, that range from the, this practice. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing this right. Angaria. It, it was a practice with, with Roman soldiers that, that it was a, a rule basically that they could commandeer stuff for their purposes as they were, if they were on official business, that they could actually go and, and take your donkey or horse or whatever it was, right? Like, so that might've been what was happening. And so when they were like, hey, the Lord needs it, people might've been like, okay, yeah, this is one of those Roman things. Here we go. Uh, it might've been that these were, were faithful Jews and, and, and had heard that Jesus is coming and he's bringing the kingdom and, and they had this same anticipation that the crowds follow him. And they might've been like, oh yes, we're in. Definitely use my donkey. That'll be a great story for the grandkids. We have no idea kind of what exactly was going on. But 
we do know that, that God and his sovereignty and his providence orchestrated everything so that for whatever reason, the owners of the donkey and the neighbors of the guy who owned the donkey were like, yeah, cool, no problem, take it, bring it back, no sweat. And so they bring this donkey to Jesus. And it seems like a weird story. But as Matthew reminds us, this isn't just this random, like, hey, Jesus needs a donkey to ride on. He's tired. There's actually something very significant going on here in the broader story of the Bible. In Zechariah 9, we, we read this promise that, that your king is coming humble and riding on a donkey. That, that Matthew tells us that's what's being fulfilled here. That, that's why I'm saying that this is the messianic entry because in Zechariah there's this, this promise that this is how the Messiah would come. What's interesting, we always read that and we're like, oh yeah, he rode in on a donkey instead of a horse and it was this humble thing and great. But what's fascinating is if you read the rest of Zechariah 9, yes, he rides in humble on a donkey. It says that, but then he lights people up in the rest of, of Zechariah 9. He doesn't come in riding on a donkey, humble, and he went to the cross and died. No, he comes in riding on a donkey, and then he smokes people and establishes the kingdom. So when we read these stories and, and we see that kind of expectation, it's not just this utterly unreasonable expectation that the kingdom was going to be established and that it was going to be incredible and, 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 and this kind of apocalyptic, apocalyptic kind of scene. They're not completely off base for thinking that. They're just a little bit ahead of the game. That will happen. But first, something much more humbling, something much more humiliating, frankly, has to happen. So, so there's this messianic picture. But then as, as they ride in, they get the donkey and, and they go back and, and, and they, they put blankets on the donkey for Jesus to sit on and, and they throw their coats on the floor and, and these palm branches. And it's, they're, they're basically just like rolling out the red carpet. Here comes the king. And they're shouting and, and, and it's this, this, this whole big thing, right? Well, well, this is reminiscent of another scene in the Old Testament. When Jehu in 2 Kings 9 became king, what was going on there was, was, was Joram and Ahaziah were in cahoots. Joram was a real bad dude. His parents were this couple named Ahab and Jezebel. If you've read the Old Testament at all, you know that's not who you want as your parents. They were bad, and, and the promise was that, that you and your kids are you're going to be killed and the dogs are going to lick up your blood. Like it was, God was not pleased with them. And Jehu was the guy that he sent, anointed by Elisha, to go and take out Joram and reestablish the kingdom of God in holiness. And guess what happened when he was anointed as king? They get a donkey and they lay out the blankets and he rides on these blankets being announced as the king. And what was he coming to do? To reestablish the kingdom of God according to God's rule. So, so there's all kinds of like deliverance and, and messianic things that are woven into this random little story about them commandeering some poor guy's donkey for this mission. And, and the Jews would have, would have probably gotten some of this. Just like when we see in a movie or, or, or something, there may be kind of some vague allusion to Scripture, and we're like, oh, okay, I see what they're doing here. 
they would have had that same kind of cultural and, and, and spiritual and, and, and didactic understanding of the Bible. And, and when they see stuff like this unfolding, some of them at least would have been like, oh, okay, this is like Jehu, this is Zechariah 9, stuff's about to go down, and it's going to be awesome. Now, Jehu did what he was supposed to do, but he ended up being kind of a lousy king and rejected because he didn't lead the people away from idolatry, which is why that whole scene had to be repeated with Jesus. Because Jehu might have been good for that one job, but he wasn't actually a very good Messiah at all. And so this whole scene is repeated here with Jesus. The Messiah is showing up. The prophecies are being fulfilled. Something big is about to happen. And everybody, it seems, is excited about whatever that is. And so that brings us to the the second point in this passage. The hopeful royal reception. Verse 9, those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, if you're like me, you hear Hosanna and you really probably have no idea what it means. You're just like, oh, that's this like cool Bible word that people shout when they're excited. It's probably kind of like hallelujah, like Hosanna. And that's kind of how we use it sometimes. It's just this kind of like praise word that, that, we, that we throw in like a praise break in the song. Like we're shouting Hosanna and we're probably dancing and, you know, it's, it's, it's fun, right? Well, there's actually way more to it than that. See, what's happening here is the people are, are building on Psalm 118 that Rob read to us earlier, specifically verses 25 and 26. And you're like, okay, I don't remember him saying Hosanna when he read that song. But he did. It just sounded like this. Save us. That's what Hosanna means. It's it's Aramaic. It's it's them calling out for salvation. It's actually not a a praise word at all. Like we tend to use it. Like I think we tend to think about it. It is calling out to God to save us. That's what they're expecting. This isn't necessarily a scene where they're just like skipping and it's all this liturgical dance and spinning the ribbons and banging the tambourines as Jesus comes in. No, they're leading in, throwing down their coats, hollering out, save us. That's what they're looking for. Salvation from this guy riding this commandeered donkey. They want salvation. And and there's an interesting structure to what they call. First, they they call out, save us. Then two different ways they they announce blessing that that kind of in this parallel structure that that, that Hebrew literature loves, explain each other. And then they call out again, save us. So let's look at what it is that they're saying. First of all, as we've already covered, save us. And then the two blessings. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A direct quote of Psalm 118.26. That that psalm that Rob read to us earlier that was all about the salvation of God. And then a second blessing. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. 
See, at this point, the messianic expectation, the hope of Israel, it is thick at this point. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one that Yahweh has sent to save us. Blessed is the one that's going to bring the kingdom of David. Remember, that's what they've been waiting on. This entire time, they've been waiting on the kingdom of David. A good argument can be made, and and I've talked about this before because so much of my brain space is taken up with it, but a good argument can be made that this is what the book of Psalms is all about. That you get to the end of book 3, Psalm 89, and it's this question of, well, what now? Because the Davidic kingdom seems to be over. And then the next, the rest of the Psalter, book 4 and book 5, are answering that, oh no, it's not over. God's still going to do something, and it's going to end in his praise. They're still rightly expecting this fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. That that a king in the line of David is going to reign, and he's going to reign forever, and his kingdom is going to have no end. That's what they're calling out for. That's the salvation they want. This this eternal security, this, this eternal hope, this eternal identity based on this King David. Save us! You blessed one who's come in the name of the Lord to do this. You blessed one who is bringing the kingdom of our father David. In other words, who's going to get rid of these dirty Romans once and for all and give us back the promised land. And then they end their call again, Hosanna, save us in the highest. Save us to the uttermost. That's what they're calling for. As they see Jesus ride in, the hopeful royal reception that they're giving him is the pleading with him, the calling on him to save them and establish the kingdom that they've longed for and have lost. Save us, O King. This fits with what we've read. It fits with Psalm 118 that that, that Rob read to us earlier. It fits with, with Psalm 2 that our liturgy was built on. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? What's the answer? He who sits in the heavens laughs. He set his son on his throne in Zion and he will crush these kings with a rod of iron. That's what they're expecting. That's the Hosanna that they're calling for. That's why when they see this one who rode in on a donkey as we'll get to eventually about to be condemned and nailed to a cross because he's refusing to do what they think he's supposed to be, that's why they turn on him. Because he's not bringing the Hosanna that they think he was going to. At least they think he's not. So third, no, before we move on, When we understand that this kingdom of David that they're calling out for is the same as Christ's kingdom. Because remember what what the angel said to to, to Mary in Luke. You're going to have a son. You're going to call his name Jesus. He's going to to inherit his father David's kingdom. And he's going to reign forever. So, So they're calling out for the right thing. And they're calling out to the right guy. That the kingdom of David would come. 
and, and we think you're the one to bring it. Now, ultimately, they miss how this kingdom was going to come. But when we understand that the kingdom of David is the same as Christ's kingdom, we find that Luther's contrast of the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of Christ is very instructive for us today. In his commentary on Galatians, uh, early in the commentary, he says this, Paul is indicating what the kingdom of this world looks like. It is nothing else but the devil's kingdom of wickedness, ignorance, errors, sin, death, blasphemies, desperation, and eternal damnation. Christ's kingdom, on the other hand, is the complete opposite. It's the kingdom of equity, light, grace, forgiveness of sins, peace, consolation, salvation, and eternal life to where we have been translated by our Lord Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever. Amen. See, sometimes in, in our zeal for, for whatever it is that we're zealous for, we get these kingdoms backwards. And, and, and we get backwards how these kingdoms are established. The kingdom that Christ was bringing was this kingdom of grace and light and forgiveness of sins and, and equity and, and peace. That's what he was coming to bring. That's why his kingdom came the way it did. Yes, the, the, the nations and the kings will be crushed with a rod of iron, but, but first he's coming humble, riding on, a, riding on a donkey to be delivered to death in order to secure his kingdom. Because his kingdom is utterly different than anything else we've seen or anything else we've been taught to expect. But then something happens in verse 11. And, and I'm not going to say a lot here, but just that, that we, we may be tempted to read verse 11 as just kind of this, this incidental kind of biographical note. Like, okay, here's what happened next, just to move the story along. But I think it's actually very instructive for us and in that it shows something about the, 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 the constant amazing patience of Jesus. He gets to Jerusalem with all the fanfare, with all the expectation, with all of the hosannas being shouted. And he looks around and then leaves because it's light. He goes to the temple where, where a whole bunch of stuff is about to go down. And he looks around and then just leaves. And nothing happens. And, and this is kind of amazing to me if we think about it, but because he's got this whole crowd with him. He, he's got the, the mob and, and he's got the momentum at this point. And he could have just set the crowd loose on the Capitol to, to really make a point. I mean, like, you've got a group of people shouting, deliver us, Hosanna, blessed is the co I mean, they were ready. Let's do this. But that's not the nature of his kingdom, is it? That's not why he was coming. And in fact, that very thing is exactly why he was so constantly like, like downplaying and telling people, hey, don't talk about this. Because that's what he didn't want to happen. He didn't actually come to Jerusalem to establish his reign via a crowd supporting and fighting for him. But through probably, as we read the story, the very same crowd rejecting him and calling for and ultimately getting his death. 
Jesus knew how his kingdom would come and getting to Jerusalem was just the first first step. But there was more to be done before he would ultimately be killed and rise again, establishing his kingdom forever. And so this isn't just an incidental biographical note. It's purposeful. Jesus came with all the fanfare, with all the momentum, with the crowds of people shouting, save us. He could have spoken a word and a fight would have broken out in Jerusalem to overthrow the Romans. And he didn't. He turned around and left. So fourth, why does Jesus coming as he did matters? Matter. The kingdom of which we are citizens defines us. That's why it matters that we understand how it is that Jesus was bringing his kingdom. Because the way he brought his kingdom was in perfect accord with the nature of his kingdom. And the kingdom that we're citizens of defines what our citizenship, what our faithfulness looks like. That's why this matters. That's why it matters that, that we see that, that, no, this kingdom that he was bringing is this messianic kingdom that was promised long ago. This kingdom that he's bringing is the kingdom of David that was promised so long ago. This kingdom that he's bringing doesn't come in the normal ways, so that anything in this world or anyone in this world can be pointed to as the one on whom the kingdom stands. This kingdom comes in the backwards way of the king dying and rising again, so that the only thing we can point to as the basis of the kingdom is the cross of Christ. Nothing else but his cross, his finished work, His life, death, and resurrection. That's how the kingdom came. We don't bring the kingdom. The kingdom came with Christ. We live as faithful citizens. The type of kingdom of which we are now citizens, the nature of that kingdom determines the way we live. So this should force us to ask some key questions of ourselves. When when I think of myself, do I think of myself primarily as a citizen of this world or some kingdom of this world, or do I think of myself as a citizen of the kingdom of Christ? In other words, it it, it drives at, at how we understand our own identity. Are we primarily Americans and fighting for that kingdom, or are we most fundamentally Christians? living as faithful citizens of the kingdom of God. Yes, displaced. Yes, in the the present dispersion, like those exiles that Peter wrote his letters to. But how we understand ourselves and the kingdom of which we are a citizen affects very much how we live and what we look to for comfort and what we look to for hope and what we look to for our identity what we look to for our security. So how do you understand yourself? Of what kingdom 
Are you a citizen seeking to live faithfully? That leads us to to another question. Am I working for the preservation of an earthly kingdom which Christ will bring to an end? Or for the glory of the king whose kingdom will have no end? For what am I expending myself? Is it to preserve this that will be shattered with a rod of iron? Or is it for the glory of the king whose kingdom will have no end? Now, some people will will say something ridiculous like, well, we don't need to be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. And, And I've made the point before. No, 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 no. The only way we can be earthly good is we are utterly heavenly minded. That's it. Is if we understand ourselves to be fundamentally citizens of the kingdom of God, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, grounded there in the finished work of Jesus Christ, grounded as faithful subjects of the king of all eternity, then we can do what Isaiah tells us to do. To love our neighbors and get married and build houses because their good is our good. See, we can only actually begin seeking the good of our neighbor. We can only actually begin doing those things when we understand that our hope, security, and identity doesn't actually depend on that. We benefit from it, to be sure. But we don't depend on it. And it's only when we have that level of freedom that level of security, that level of, uh, of certainty of our identity in Christ and as citizens of his kingdom, that, that we feel that we experience the freedom to give up trying to secure this kingdom for ourselves. Then, then we can actually get about the work of loving our neighbor. Parents, This is a hard one. Are we concerned more with preparing our kids for life in this world or for life in the kingdom of God? Which which are we more concerned with? And we need to be honest. We need to be honest with ourselves about this. Too often I find in my own heart that that I would be satisfied and feel like I had been a really good parent if my kids achieve some, like, respectability in this world. I feel like I can pat myself on the back and say, all right, I did my job. The hard thing for me to admit is is that sometimes I find more comfort in that reality for their future than to be able to look at them and say, man, they may have no respectability in this world, but they know to whom they belong. And they live as faithful citizens of the kingdom of God. Because I can't guarantee that that leads to an ounce of respectability in this world. 
I can't guarantee that that leads to, to, a, to a second of security in this world. But that's what we're called to prepare our children for, first and foremost. When we understand the nature of the kingdom that Christ was bringing, and how he was bringing it. It changes how we look at everything. When we see that he was the messianic king, bringing the kingdom of David, bringing salvation for his people, and that he wasn't doing it through power grabs, but through the subversive laying down of his life. That's where our eyes need to be fixed. If we want to understand this world and what our role in this world is, we have to look through the cross of Christ by which he established his kingdom forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ coming. We thank you that he brought the kingdom of God that he answered the cries of Hosanna. We thank you, if, if, if we can stop long enough to be, to be honestly led by the Spirit, we thank you that it didn't come in the way we so would like it to come. That it didn't come by our works, but by his sacrifice. And we thank you that by his death and resurrection, he has shown the foolishness and the weakness of the powers of this world. And we ask that you would set our eyes on him as the true king, that we might follow him that we might shout, Hosanna. Blessed is he who came in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of scripture and theology.